You're listening to episode 18, where we chat with the boss of behaviors, the shogun of strategy, web psychologist, Natalie Nahai. Humans and robots, welcome to Watchcast. My name is Watch, founder of Quasi. Thanks for joining me today. I interview digital marketing and branding superstars to find out what it means to have empathy in digital. What is digital empathy anyway? Let's find out together. And as always, I'm accompanied by my friend and associate, potentially superior artificial intelligence, Bobby Bot. What's new in the world of AI, Bobby? I'm going to turn the tables this time, Watch. What's happening in the world of human intelligence today? Human intelligence? Brilliant to see it at work in the flesh. You know, you've been working to put empathy into me from the outside in. But what if we have it all wrong? What if my examination of you is the key? Seeing how you put things together. Essentially, that's what marketers do, right? Trying to understand human behavior like an army of web psychologists. Did you know that is a thing, Bobby Bot? Thought I just made it up. No, it's it's real. And I know one. I can link you into a chat we had. Web psychology is an important consideration for any brand choosing to participate online. So I discussed what makes people click with none other but the web psychologist herself, Natalie Nahai, while I was at MozCon. Natalie is the author of the absolutely fascinating book, Webs of Influence, The Psychology of Online Persuasion, where we learn how to know who we're targeting, to communicate persuasively, and to sell with integrity. Three very important elements every digital marketer should embrace. I highly recommend it. She's also the host of a podcast series, The Good, The Bad, and The Dirty, Secret Psychology of Persuasion where she chats with fellow authors, doctors, psychologists, digital marketers, and other interesting people. When she's not writing books and doing interviews, Natalie can be found traveling the world, speaking at various conferences, and assisting large organizations with fundamentally understanding human behavior and applying her principles to get better bang for their bucks. Let's shrink some heads. From a young age, Natalie was drawn to psychology and decrypting the minds of human beings. We have something in common. Honestly, I think it started when I was really young. I, I got bullied for 10 years at school, which I fucking hated. Oh, am I allowed to share? Sure. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> and so I think when you're, I think most people have some kind of bad experiences growing up, but people are mean and you have to start navigating those waters. Um, and I think that's where I started understanding if you could try and unpick why people are doing things, then maybe you've got a better chance of survival. So I think that's where it actually originates. Um, then I accidentally ended up doing psychology as one of my extra A-levels and um, loved it so much that instead of going directly to art school, which is what I was going to do, my mom suggested go and do a BSc in psych because you could apply it with your art or with your music to anything you like because you know the arts industries are very difficult and you won't make much money. So I did and uh, that's kind of, that was a starting point really. From a playground to university, eventually Natalie's curiosity and ability to learn quickly drew her into web and digital strategies. Well, after I finished my psych degree, I've been doing quite a lot of music, both here and in the US. I was recording in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, I kind of, I needed to start getting websites, and of course, this was several years ago, so back then, it was, there weren't that many great websites. And I thought, well, I can either pay some guy, at the time, it was like two grand, now it's like upwards of 10 or whatever it is. Yep. Um, so I can either pay this guy a couple of grand every year to, to design a site, or I could just spend a couple of hundred quid and learn how to code and design a site myself. So I, I went and learned, you know, basic HTML, CSS, yep. and then started learning Flash, and then HTML5 came along, and I thought, right, it's just sinking shit, I'll <laughs> yeah. just quit while I'm ahead. Um, so that's how I ended up in design, was just, right. and then 
the music wasn't going so well just because there was, I was already 26 years old, there weren't that many female musicians, and also at that age, music industry, which is run by guys, predominantly would pull the plug, and folk was not a big thing. So it was just, right. it was just, so many, not things. so many things that were just a big yeah. no, really. Um, so then, because I've been doing the design stuff on the side, and people were starting to ask me to do their sites because they'd seen what I'd done for myself, right. I accidentally ended up being a freelance web designer for a while. In isolation, Web design and psychology are very different disciplines, but they make so much sense when combined. Natalie really had to understand the behavior of people traversing around her sites from a search engine point of view and from a personal point of view. Well, that's it. And I think especially now that we're seeing you know, technology catching up with, with how we behave naturally, if you look at things like the kinds of algorithms that, that Google are bringing out and how you can no longer trick the system with you know, heavily loading keywords into a page. It's taking a much more naturalistic approach, so yes. imitating human behavior. So of course, yes. if you're moving technology into this way, especially with things like the Internet of Things, wearable tech, we're moving closer and closer towards creating just an additional depth to our existing offline reality, yes. which is so much more seamless that if you want to get to that point, which is already now is happening, then you have to understand psychology because that's it's human users at this point until we create AI. Yes. Um, and so that's kind of the context for all of it. It's the key that unlocks everything. If that's the case, then you'll need bot psychologists to study their unique behavior patterns. Why do robots learn the encyclopedia backwards? New consumer trends. We're also drawn to understanding ourselves. I've never studied psychology formally, but I know a lot of things around the edges from reading bits here and there. My parents split while I was growing up. So I think I was a natural psychologist for it because I had to learn at a very young age how to deal with things. I find it intriguing, blending these two disciplines. So at the moment, most of what I do is speaking and uh, training. So it's teaching, basically. I speak yep. a lot of different conferences and at big companies. And then the training side, which is a kind of the consulting side, is, is usually with marketing teams and e-commerce teams, teaching them how to apply the web psychology stuff within whatever specific projects okay. they're doing. Because Web psychology, it's not just about the design of websites, it's to do with um, any kind of app, or it could be any online environment. Um, also the design of any products. Any kind of touch point, really. Yeah, interface online. The, the whole experience. Exactly, and it depends on which way you want to go with it. Um, so then also, I mean, I do do auditing type stuff and help people to redesign sites from the ground up. That's what we do here at Quasi as well. We work with web development companies and we guide them in the right direction because they'll often design a site without any background information other than what's been supplied by the client or based on their past experiences. So we audit from a user and search engine point of view and we also look at click tracking to see how people are navigating around the site. For example, on one site, we found that people were only clicking two buttons on the homepage. Then, when we crawled and examined the site, we found that most of the content was nestled six levels deep. So we took those internal page elements, which got used quite regularly, and moved them to the front page, which had an impact. Also, involving the designers in that process was important. It's an educated approach rather than a we did an upgrade where we just gave you flashy bells and whistles. Well, often you just don't need all of that. You just need to make things more coherent so that everything's pulling towards the goals that you want to achieve. Natalie put together a book called Webs of Influence that put all of her skills to the test in order to leave a lasting contribution to the wellspring of information in digital marketing. So from start to finish about a year and a half, most of it was I started quite slowly. So. When I was at uni, I always used to research for you know projects by printing stuff out, highlighting. I sort of took that long approach over the summer of 2011. 
And then I got to about January 2012 and I thought, oh shit, I really need to start putting my finger out and just writing a book. So when I started writing from Feb till about, well, it was four months in, so February, March, May, the end of, the end of May, I was writing four to six hours a day, four days a week, for four months solid. Like, I just wow. head down and the goal was 50,000 words. I got to 88,000 and then I had to cut back. Wow. Um, and then there was an extra two weeks of design time on you know, so we commissioned the covers, they did a shocking job of the covers, and the inside stuff, was, it was just awful. So I designed everything, the infographics, really? the, the page design, the front cover, the back wow. cover, the site, the video that goes along with the, yeah, yeah so well, the thing it is was it's... a long process. Her hands-on approach paid off. A lot of marketing books you get are just text with black and white diagrams. Natalie has a level of engagement going on where as a reader, you get to witness how she is living her book and practicing what she is preaching. No need to preach to the choir. A meta description. When they came back to me with initial design, I love the editors there. They did an amazing job on the content, but coming back to the design, it's like, you guys have not read the freaking book. Like, <laughs> if you do this, you'll undermine the entire thesis of the book. Yeah. Let me design it, implement everything that, that I've been talking about. Um, but also, I think people, you know, there's really fun ways to learn. And you've got to write something which is going to be exciting and captivating and provocative and fun. And I think hopefully it's, it's done that. I would like to think that it's done that. I want to learn about psychological tests. Recently, I came across something called the Hicks Law, which looks at choice. It's basically saying that when people have too much choice, they tend not to choose anything. There was a test with jam displays that showed that more choice leads to less actual selection. I'm interested in applying some other real-world psychological tests that I can run on watch from time to time. No jam necessary. Maybe peanut butter or manuka honey. Well, one thing that I really like, because you can apply it to anything, whether you're selling something on a sales page or you're chatting someone up for a date, is um, reducing ambiguity so as to make someone feel more comfortable. So if you're meeting a lovely lass or guy or whomever at a bar uh, and you're approaching them to chat with them, um, one of the best things you can do psychologically is to frame the conversation say, look, I'm in a bit of a rush, I've only got three minutes, I wondered if, and then you insert whatever kind of chat up line you want to say. Right. And the reason that that works, same, same things on sign-up forms, you know, Hootsuite I think do this, um, registration only takes 60 seconds. If you reduce people's ambiguity and their fear, then they're much more open to having that dialogue with you. So that's one right. of my favorite techniques, is reducing ambiguity. Another one is based on Gestalt principles, um, the idea that we don't like uh, lack of completion. So if you see, uh, say it's an e-commerce site and you're seeing a range of products, and the screen shows only the top of the products at the bottom of the page, so you can just see that there's something extra, it will encourage you to scroll down. Yep. So things like that, really simple principles that you can employ, whether it's online or in print, or whatever it might be. Note to self, rush watch with impossible timetables and always provide extra hidden options. Okay, interesting. Perhaps wearable tech and devices like Google Glass will assist with capturing data for online neuromarketing tests. I think it is interesting where it goes. I think the, the danger that we always face that we haven't yet surmounted is kind of, I don't know if that's the word, siloization, but like, um, segmentation of these different tools. So you might say, okay, well, let's go with um, eye tracking. Fine. Eye tracking, great tool. It will tell you exactly where people's focused attention is. It doesn't tell you anything about your brain's um, attention to peripheral cues. Things like smells. Not that that applies to the ghost in the machine or the ghost in the shell. Awesome movie. Or even like, in, you know, if I'm looking at you as we're talking right now, there's stuff that's going on in my peripheral vision that my yeah. brain will be taking in without necessarily right, right. being consciously aware and all of those things whether that's online on the side of the page they all have an effect on right. on our state of mind decision making processes etc so i think wearable tech all of that stuff will provide us 
ways to measure certain quantifiable things about behavior like eye movements or galvanic skin response, etc. But I think the really big break will come when there is a holistic way that employs a whole range of these tools or right. a toolkit in combination. in combination within a much broader, deeper psychological context or understanding of behavior, which is more qualitative as well as quantitative. And I think when you've got that kind of fully specked out holistic system, yeah. the excitement and also the terror that we either, we either use it for you know, extraordinary good or we're all fucked. So we're going to have to be very fearful of articles that come out and draw conclusions based on a single device. We like silver bullets. Silver bullets are only yeah. good for one thing and that's kind of like shooting idiots. Um, so just <laughs> don't werewolves. get sniped. By... Oh, werewolves. Oh, yeah. vampires also have you know? Or American werewolves in London. The special effects. Same guy who did Thriller. Can you dig it? <laughs> From all of Natalie's research, if she had to set up shop anywhere in the world, the low-hanging fruit would seem like an ideal place to do business, where society is the most vulnerable to being sold to. I don't know. I don't. I've never thought that. I don't know. I think possibly the societies that have a shorter history of being online, so places possibly like China, for instance, which still has um, you know a way to go, or developing countries, India, possibly Africa. But to be honest, I think. For me, persuasion is a tool for good, and it's, it's only supposed to be used if, if it's for mutual benefit. So, like, sure. on principle, even if I could make a huge amount of money doing that, I wouldn't. I believe that it can be used for altruistic good, like in terms of third world countries. It should be possible to use psychology and online tools to benefit others, not just gambling websites. There's a great um, company based in London called Visual DNA, and they've found some really interesting stuff with um, looking at psychometric data, so personality profiling people in countries which countries in which it's very difficult for people to get lines of credit. So for instance, um, in Africa and certain regions, they've found that people have to pay in cash, so they don't have any kind of credit history. So if they need to buy a credit card, sign up for a credit card, they can't because their credit rating is so bad. Right. So they've found, sort of, we're moving into a sort of weird space here, but they found that you can really very accurately predict if someone would be a good candidate for credit lines, i.e. they'll repay it, they won't end up in debt, they'll use it responsibly. Um, and become long-term customers just by looking at their personality traits once they're into adulthood. Right. So there is the potential for guys don't have lines of credit, can get loans to set up businesses, to buy a house, whatever, um, without that history just because you're looking at the psychometric profiling. However, it doesn't take a genius to look at the flip side as well, which is yeah, and then there's the human rights, and, yeah. exactly. So one has to be extraordinarily careful with these things. Natalie's research also puts her in a position to discover unique trends in global user behavior. Well, here's one that I like about Germany, which is that in Germany, if you're going into e-commerce, you have to give free shipping and you have to pay for people sending you loads of stuff back because otherwise they won't buy from you. In Brazil, a lot of it's cash on demand, uh, cash on demand, cash on delivery, sorry. So they'll order something online, the infrastructure is such that you'll have a delivery person come to your door, you inspect the goods and then you pay. This is like online offline thing. Um, also in individualistic societies, there are much greater gender differences in terms of um, things like trust, self-representation online, how much data you're likely to give in terms of your personal information. So those are three off the top of my head. She also knows some actions that stop customers from buying. Like taking the prize out of the cereal box. Sure fire. Perfect example, I'll give you the top one. Um, researchers found that it, when we're paying for something, it activates a lot of the same areas of the brain that activate when we're in physical pain. So it's painful to pay, to part with money. Now, if you are considering like the small number of people who'll come through your funnel, who'll get to the conversion page, where they're actually gonna pay you for something, 
you're already talking about someone who's in some kind of level of pain, or so research suggests, right? So the last thing you want to do is add to that psychological pain by creating something that's difficult for them to complete. And what you often find is that the people, it's one of the first places I would test, people create these long forms, they don't test them with their users, and you end up with way too many uh, mandatory fields that really they don't need, so you're making the process too long. It's also punitive because the red asterisks in the cultures that usually use them have a negative association, you have all these warnings that pop up if you do something wrong. Also the postcode boxes are often two postcode sections instead of one and people get frustrated. Right. So you're basically punishing them at the, at the checkout yeah. and according to the peak end rule we tend to remember entire experiences based on the best peaks, the lowest peaks and the thing at the end. So if this is the worst peak and it's at the end, then you're really screwing your customers over. Wow, you've almost got them. You've yeah. almost got them and then they're kind of going, we're going to land you in a world of pain. So a quick and easy way to do it, test your form length, see if you can reduce the form so that you're stripping out all the unnecessary stuff. And also, instead of creating um, a negative association, I know this sounds like a really simple hack, but researchers in, this, in the Netherlands have found this helpful. When they fill in a form correctly, like a field, like your name, Give people like a green tick in Western cultures, yes. green and ticks so. associated. Well, yeah. yeah, and it's just a nice I think little hack. one of your podcasts, you, you talk about a checkbox. That's right, it's yeah. Positive affirmation. Precisely, positive yeah. affirmation. Um, and that can that can be one way to alleviate that particular issue. Um, just as an example, one should always trust, sure. but um, yeah. Natalie knows how important it is to communicate persuasively. It's something that people should be looking at first before they start building a website. Do not pass go. Do not collect common sense. I would say yes, before you get to building a website or any of that stuff, what are your values as a brand of one or a brand of a company, whatever it might be? What's the core value or core values that you need to espouse? How will you transmit that throughout or infuse that throughout all of your messages, all of your content? And then understanding how best to kind of adapt that to both the people that you're trying to reach and the channel through which you're reaching them. So the people, it would be things like mirroring their linguistic styles, the clothing if you're doing videos, gestures, eye, eye contact, um, all that sort of thing. Uh, so all these subconscious cues that we look to, and then the channels, I'm not going to talk to you too much about that, but formal on LinkedIn, short characters or concise on Twitter. In a TED talk by Simon Sinek, he attributed Apple's success to what he described as the why, how, what strategy. Why, how, what. This little idea explains why some organizations and some leaders are able to inspire where others aren't. Let me define the terms really quickly. Every single person, every single organization on the planet knows what they do 100%. Some know how they do it, whether you call it your differentiating value proposition or your proprietary process or your USP. But very, very few people or organizations know why they do what they do. And by why, I don't mean to make a profit. That's a result. It's always a result. By why, I mean what's your purpose? What's your cause? What's your belief? Why does your organization exist? From a psychological point of view, Natalie can explain why this little thing called why works. A crazy little thing called why. Because they're drawn to people who um, are like-minded to us to a great extent, unless we're very high dopamine, in which case we're risk-taking and novelty-seeking, we'll kind of go away from that, but we like that which is similar. So if you have a very strong why, and you can say this is why we're doing it, then those people with whom that message resonates will naturally congregate around you, and there'll be a much deeper connection, typically speaking. Um, and then of course you're creating a common cause that people can kind of rally behind, and it's more meaningful. Uh, also, it creates more relational customer relationships as opposed to transactional ones, which tend yeah. to be based on one of Caldini's six principles is reciprocity. Reciprocity is important online, 
you have to overcome online communication barriers that make it hard to evoke emotions. Rand Fishkin does this really well. Well, one thing recently that I had said that I hadn't considered actually, which I thought was very insightful, was uh, when I was at Peru, was at Lithium. Fascinating guy, extraordinarily smart, and actually quite compassionate in terms of his speaking style, which is fine. He was talking about using reciprocity to help your customers to help you. So often we're always talking about serving the customer. What can we do for you? What can we help you with? And what you'll find is that in relationships, like if you're in a relationship and the other person's always doing stuff for you, you feel kind of off, like it feels imbalanced. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that you know the customer-brand uh, relationship should be the same as an intimate relationship, but if you enable people to reciprocally help you out, you create more of a sense of a bond. And I think that's something that could be really done and it's sort of used well to, to not only help you research your customers what they want, but create a more uh, emotion, emotionally intimate connection with with the people you're Natalie usually has the five fun questions at the end of her podcast. So now it's Bobby Bot's turn to use his human psychology algo to fire off something that brings Natalie joy. I love these. Security or risk? Ooh, depends on what kind of risk, but generally risk. Priorities or vulnerabilities? Oh, oh God. As a psychologist, I suspect. Vulnerabilities is the areas for growth, but priorities is systematic. I would. Uh, priorities. Creative or data driven? Creative. I was going to say, or a combination of both. It would I, be I a combination, but I, I was forced to choose. Moderated would be good. But, yeah. If yeah. they could mate, that would be perfect. Yes. Like my my dad's right. a physicist, my mom's a psychologist, and then they mated, perfect. and then there was me. Look, yes, and I think nice. there's a kind of. <laughs> this is a weird. Sorry, guys, bit of an odd conversation. But um, I think combination of the two is always good. Yeah. Yes. When the arts and data mate, you get good things. Excellent answers. I think I have made sufficient strides with this specimen watch. I'd like to sit down with psychologists on a more regular basis. I think they are as obsessed with human intent as I am, especially when it comes to what you buy. So we might have a budding web psychologist on our hands. Really enjoyed catching up with uh, Natalie and I love how she investigates the mind and you know how we can build better websites by seeing what's ticking and understanding people. You can actually catch the second edition of Webs of Influence, The Psychology of Online Persuasion, which has been translated into five languages now. So it's available in English, South Korean, Mandarin, Spanish, and Polish. Natalie is also launching a brand new podcast called Seeking the Self Podcast. So it's all about finding out how we lose ourselves in the modern world. So in the times of great flux, uncertainty, and disconnectedness, the question of who we are and how we relate to ourselves and others takes on a new urgency and meaning so she's joined on the show with dr aaron balik who's a bbc radio one's resident psychotherapist and an award-winning producer and the award-winning producer hannah walker brown so you can find out all about that podcast at seekingtheselfpodcast.com. Uh, be sure to follow Nat- Natalie on social media. We'll have links in the show notes as well as some of our favorite work that she's produced and all the things we've mentioned today, all the things we've mentioned during this episode. And remember, please share this episode if you enjoyed it. It helps us get the word out there. Share it with your friends, networks, colleagues, bots, and associates. And as usual... It's Bobby's turn to ask me a few questions, uh, which piqued his curiosity during the episode. What do you got for me, Bobby? This session is on the clock watch. Security or risk? Risk. It used to be security, but it's now risk. (laughs) Priorities or vulnerabilities? Vulnerabilities. Creative or data-driven? It's got to be both. It's got to be a hybrid, but I'm going to have to lean towards creative. I still like the shiny objects. 
I don't think the regular quota of questions will suffice this time around, Watch. We need to really excavate your entire psychic makeup. This could take some time. Well, as long as there'll be comfy couches. Leather, of course. Great. So it all started when I was 12. Interesting. Wait, wait, wait. Let me start the clock. Light a pipe. And polish my spectacles. Your dollar. There we have it. Thanks again, Watchcasters. That's all the time we have for today. Tune in next week for episode 19 to check out my interview with Will Reynolds. I think that we have to have an empathy for the fact that when we're telling people to change a website, we're, we're telling somebody that what you did isn't right yeah. for some reason. We have to be careful about that and the way that we phrase that and the way we do that because it is somebody's work. And in the meantime, remember, look after each other online because empathy is organic and you can't automate empathy.